Shubha. When the girl was given the name of Shubhashini, who could have guessed that she would prove dumb? Her two elder sisters were Shukeshini and Suhasini, and for the sake of uniformity, her father named his youngest girl Shubhashini. She was called Shubha for short. Her two elder sisters had been married with the usual cost and difficulty, and now the youngest daughter lay like a silent weight upon the heart of her parents. All the world seemed to think that because she did not speak, therefore she did not feel. It discussed her future and its own anxiety freely in her presence. She had understood from her earliest childhood that God had sent her like a curse to her father's house. So she withdrew herself from ordinary people and tried to live apart. If only they would all forget her, she felt she could endure it. But who can forget pain? Night and day her parents' minds were aching on her account. Especially her mother looked upon her as a deformity in herself. To a mother, a daughter is a more closely intimate part of herself than a son can be, and the fault in her is a source of personal shame. Bonikonto Subhash's father loved her rather better than his other daughters. Her mother regarded her with aversion as a stain upon her own body. If Shubha lacked speech, she did not lack a pair of large dark eyes shaded with long lashes, and her lips trembled like a leaf in response to any thought that rose in her mind. When we express our thought in words, the medium is not found easily. There must be a process of translation, which is often inexact, and then we fall into error. But black eyes need no translating. The mind itself throws a shadow upon them. In them, thought opens or shuts, shines forth or goes out in darkness, hangs steadfast like the setting moon or like the swift and restless lightning illumines all quarters of the sky. They who from birth have had no other speech than the trembling of their lips, Learn a language of the eyes, endless in expression, deep as the sea, clear as the heavens, wherein play dawn and sunset, light and shadow. The dumb have a lonely grandeur like nature's own. Wherefore, the other children almost dreaded Shubha and never played with her. She was silent and companionless as noontide. The hamlet where she lived was Chondipur. Its river, small for a river of Bengal, kept to its narrow bounds like a daughter of the middle class. This busy streak of water never overflowed its banks, but went about its duties as though it were a member of every family in the villages beside it. On either side were houses and banks shaded with trees. So stepping from her queenly throne, the river goddess became a garden deity of each home, and forgetful of herself, performed her task of endless benediction with swift and cheerful food. Bonikonto's house looked out upon the stream. Every hut and stack in the place could be seen by the passing boatmen. I know not if amid these signs of worldly wealth anyone noticed the little girl who, when her work was done, stole away to the waterside and sat there. But here nature fulfilled her want of speech and spoke for her. The murmur of the brook, the voice of the village folk, the songs of the boatmen, the crying of the birds and rustle of trees mingled and were one with the trembling of her heart. They became one vast wave of sound which beat upon her restless soul. This murmur and movement of nature were the dumb girl's language. That speech of the dark eyes, which the long lashes shaded, was the language of the world about her. From the trees where the cicadas chirped to the quiet stars, there was nothing but signs and gestures, weeping and sighing. And in the deep mid-noon, when the boatmen and fisher folk had gone to their dinner, when the villagers slept and birds were still, when the ferry boats were idle, when the great busy world paused in its toil and became suddenly a lonely, awful giant, then beneath the vast, impressive heavens, there were 
only dumb nature and a dumb girl sitting very silent one under the spreading sunlight the other where a small tree cast its shadow but shubha was not altogether without friends in the stall were two cows shorbashi and panguli they had never heard their names from her lips but they knew her footfall though she had no words she murmured lovingly and they understood her gentle murmuring better than all speech when she fondled them or scolded or coaxed them they understood her better than men could do shubha would come to the shed and throw her arms round shorbashi's neck she would rub her cheek against her friends and panguli would turn her great kind eyes and lick her face the girl paid them three regular visits every day and others that were irregular whenever she heard any words that hurt her she would come to these dumb friends out of due time it was as though they guessed her anguish of spirit from her quiet look of sadness coming close to her they would rub their horns softly against her arms and in dumb puzzled fashion try to comfort her besides these two there were goats and a kitten but shubha had not the same equality of friendship with them though they showed the same attachment every time it got a chance night or day the kitten would jump into her lap and settle down to slumber and show its appreciation of an aid to sleep as shubha drew her soft fingers over its neck and back shubha had a comrade also among the higher animals and it is hard to say what were the girl's relations with him for he could speak and his gift of speech left them without any common language he was the youngest boy of the gosais pratap by name an idle fellow after long effort his parents had abandoned the hope that he would ever make his living now losels have this advantage that though their own folk disapprove of them they are generally popular with everyone else having no work to chain them they become public property just as every town needs an open space where all may breathe so a village needs two or three gentlemen of leisure who can give time to all then if we are lazy and want a companion one is to hand pratap's chief ambition was to catch fish he managed to waste a lot of time this way and might be seen almost in the afternoon so employed it was thus most often that he met shubha whatever he was about he liked a companion and when one is catching fish a silent companion is best of all pratap respected shubha for her taciturnity and as everyone called her shubha he showed his affection by calling her shub shubha used to sit beneath a tamarind and pratap a little distance off would cast his line pratap took with him a small allowance of betel and shubha prepared it for him and i think that sitting and gazing a long while she desired ardently to bring some great help to pratap to be of real aid to prove by any means that she was not a useless burden to the world but there was nothing to do then she turned to the creator in prayer for some rare power and by an astonishing miracle she might startle pratap into exclaiming my i never dreamt a soup could have done this only think if shubha had been a water nymph she might have risen slowly from the water bringing the gem of the snake's crown to the landing place then pratap leaving his poultry fishing might dive into the lower world and see there on a golden bed in a palace of silver whom else but dumb little su vanikantha's child
Yes, Asu, the only daughter of the king of that shining city of jewels. But that might not be, it was impossible. Not that anything is really impossible, but Su had been born not into the house of Patalpur, but into Monikanto's family. And she knew no means of astonishing the Gosai's boy. Gradually she grew up, gradually she began to find herself. A new inexpressible consciousness, like a tide from the central places of the sea. When the moon is full swept through her, she saw herself, questioned herself, but no answer came that she could understand. Once upon a time, late on a night of full moon, she slowly opened her door and peeped out timidly. Nature herself at full moon, like lonely Shubha, was looking down on the sleeping earth. Her strong young life beat within her, joy and sadness filled her being to its brim. She reached the limits even of her own illimitable loneliness, nay, passed beyond them. Her heart was heavy and she could not speak. At the skirts of this silent troubled mother, there stood a silent troubled girl. The thought of her marriage filled her parents with anxious care. People blamed them and even talked of making them outcasts. Moniconto was well off. They had fish curry twice daily, and consequently he did not lack enemies. When the women interfered, and Boni went away for a few days, presently he returned and said, "We must go to Calcutta." They got ready to go to this strange country. Shubha's heart was heavy with tears, like a mist-wrapped dawn. With a vague fear that had been gathering for days, she dogged her father and mother like a dumb animal. With her large eyes wide open, she scanned their faces as though she wished to learn something. But not a word did they vouchsafe. One afternoon, in the midst of all this, as Pratap was fishing, he laughed. So then, Sue, they have caught your bridegroom, and you are going to be married. Mind you, don't forget me altogether. Then he turned his mind again to his fish. As a stricken doe looks in the hunter's face, asking in silent agony, "What have I done to you?" So Shubha looked at Pratap. That day she sat no longer beneath her tree. Bonikanto, having finished his nap, was smoking in his bedroom when Shubha dropped down at his feet and burst out weeping as she gazed towards him. Bonikanto tried to comfort her, and his cheek grew wet with tears. It was settled that on the narrow they should go to Calcutta. Shubha went to the cowshed to bid farewell to her childhood's comrades. She fed them with her hand. She clasped their necks. She looked into their faces, and tears fell. Fast from the eyes which spoke for her. That night was the tenth of the moon. Shubha left her room and flung herself down on the grassy couch beside the dear river. It was as if she threw her arms about earth. Her strong, silent mother and tried to say, "Do not let me leave you, mother. Put your arms about me as I have put mine about you, and hold me fast." One day in a house in Calcutta, Shubha's mother dressed her up with great care. She imprisoned her hair, knotting it up in laces. She hung her about with ornaments, and did her best to kill her natural beauty. Shubha's eyes filled with tears. Her mother, fearing they would grow swollen with weeping, scolded her harshly. But the tears disregarded the scolding. The bridegroom came with a friend to inspect the bride. Her parents were dizzy with anxiety and fear when they saw the god arrive to select the beast for his sacrifice. Behind the stage, the mother called her instructions aloud and increased her daughter's weeping twofold before she sent her into the examiner's presence. The great man, after scanning her a long time, observed, "Not so bad." She took special note of her tears and thought she must have a tender heart. 
He put it to her credit in the account, arguing that the heart which today was distressed at leaving her parents would presently prove a useful possession. Like the oyster's pearls, the child's tears only increased her value, and he made no other comment. The almanac was consulted, and the marriage took place on an auspicious day. Having delivered over their dumb girl into another's hands, Shubha's parents returned home. Thank God, their caste in this and their safety in the next world were assured. The bridegroom's work lay in the west, and shortly after the marriage, he took his wife thither. In less than ten days, everyone knew that the bride was dumb. At least, if anyone did not, it was not her fault, for she deceived no one. Her eyes told them everything, though no one understood her. She looked on every hand. She found no speech. She missed the faces familiar from birth of those who had understood a dumb girl's language. In her silent heart, there sounded an endless, voiceless weeping, which only the searcher of hearts could hear. Thank you. Cicero runs into Casca on the street that night. Casca's a little shaken up, though he's seen his fair share of bad nights. He says the sky dropping hot fire is definitely up first. Casca thinks maybe there's a civil war in heaven, or maybe the gods are raining down fury because the world has displeased them. This would all be crazy talk, except that Casca seen worse than bad weather tonight. A slave boy's hand was lit on fire by a torch, and yet it did not burn. Then there was a surly lion at the Capitol. Also, a bunch of women were terrified by a vision this war they saw of men walking the streets covered in flames. Casca reports the strangest thing of all: a nighttime bird was in the market during the daytime. Since it doesn't get any crazier than that, it's clear all these things are bad omens. Cicero thinks they should hold off on crazy interpretations of the flaming men, lions, and various insomniac birds. He says people basically interpret things to mean whatever they want them to mean. After confirming that Caesar will be at the Capitol tomorrow. Cicero leaves. Casca then runs into Cassius, who has been presenting himself to the heavens to be struck by lightning. A tad concerned by this behavior, Casca asks Cassius if maybe he should have trembled at the gods' warning instead of going out for a lightning tan. Cassius thinks Casca is an idiot. Obviously, the heavens are making the world. Disco fabulous to signal their serious displeasure with the state of affairs in Rome, where a certain someone, though he is no better than Cassius, has grown too powerful for his own good. Casca Dumbas socks asks whether Cassius is talking about Julius Caesar, a true politician. Cassius does the old maybe may not. Thank you.
Either way, Casca says the Romans are acting like cowards by doing nothing to stop the tyranny, which will only get worse. Casca has heard that tomorrow the senators will crown Caesar king and that he plans to wear his crown everywhere but Italy. Cassius points out where he'll wear his dagger and basically blabs his plan to murder Caesar. The thunder stops and Cassius contends that Caesar is only a tyrant because people are stupid and beg to be taken advantage of. Cassius pretends to be surprised about revealing so much in front of Casca, who he suggests might like being Caesar's stupid stooge. Casca takes the bait and pledges not to tattle. More important, he pledges to join in on the conspiracy to kill Caesar. Conveniently, there is a meeting of all the conspirators, starting right now at the old theatre, Pompey's Porsche. They are waiting for Cassius. Sinna, another conspirator, happens to be on his way to that same secret meeting and they all stop for a chat. Sinna mentions it would be really nice if Brutus was also interested in killing his friend Caesar. To further this goal, Cassius sends Sinna on an errand to plant some letters Cassius has written in various places where Brutus will find them. Cassius has impersonated other romans in the letters, all of which praise Brutus and suggest that somebody should really off Caesar for Rome's sake. Cassius confides to Casca that they'll have Brutus on their side in no time. Casca is glad as Brutus is well regarded and will make all the nasty things they seem virtuous and worthy. Cassius agrees they really do need Brutus and by morning they'll have confirmation on whether or not he'll join them. Thank you.